Well, church, I want to commend you for something. I know that for some time, Christ Community Church has felt a bit nomadic, um, sort of uh, an exile, a, a, a very cushy exile, uh, but an exile nevertheless as we sort of are in uh, uh, sort of uh, in transition looking for a building and, and uh, you know, not feeling very stable. And, and I, I just want to commend you for your uh, attitude of trust and, and humility as, as I know that's not easy. I'm sure that's difficult to, uh, uh, to have, uh, you know, a church that kind of always feels like it's in transition. And so I want to commend you for that. And I want you to embrace the Again, I don't hear anyone com complaining, and, and I'm sure that could be a challenge at times, but I, but I want to encourage you just to, to continue to embrace the inconvenience of it all and the nomadic feel of it all. I want you to embrace this as a, as a little foretaste of, of what all of life is like, that, that this, none of this feels like our home. The world in its current state as it currently exists, that this is not how things will be. When Christ returns, then we can say, ah, this is the way it should be. And, and yet, having said that, though, I want you to know that uh, the elders are working to push this church in a direction. We have some ideas. We want this church to be a healthy church that changes the world. You are a part of that. Things are coming for you, opportunities to serve in ways previously uh, not, uh, 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 unpreviously offered, I guess the way you could put it. So please continue to pray for the elders as we think of the strategic plan and wisdom and vision for this church as a whole. We want this church to be a launch site for global ministry for the glory of Christ. We don't want to be concerned just about our own little thing here in Arlington, just in the DFW area, just in Texas. Yes, of course, that too. But we want to be a church that is a launch site for global ministry making a global impact. And just want you to know, I am not distracted by the fanning at all. Even if I said I was, it probably wouldn't deter you anyway, but I'm not distracted. You go for it. You do whatever you need to do, and I'm just going to do my best to deliver God's word, okay? So here we go. Uh, I want to begin by saying that uh, one of the things that makes the gospel so beautiful and profound is how it's designed to influence every aspect of life. In other words, the gospel message of the God who came to the earth that he created to die for the very people that sinned against him, that message is to invade every tribe and tongue and nation and people. That message is to infiltrate every aspect of society, every corner of the economy, every neighborhood, every ethno-linguistic, socio-economic subculture is to be invaded by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And see, what that means very oftentimes is that what you have as a result of that are people, radically different people, saved and sitting in the same congregation. See, the life giving, soul-saving message of Jesus Christ is, reaches not only into the corporate offices of executives, but also down into the assembly lines in the factories. The gospel is designed to save not just the somebodies, but the nobodies. The well-known and the unknown, those who change the face of human history and those who will be forgotten by human history. The point is, and you can see this coming, is that God wants his glory to be pervasive. To be pervasive. In other words, he wants to display his infinite worth and value 
at every level of society through the transformed lives of his people. Blue collar, white collar, authority, janitor, judge, president, king, peasant, master, and slave. The gospel of Christ transcends social status and job titles and rescues hell-deserving people at every aspect of life. And you see one group that the New Testament pays special attention to in particular. In fact, there are more passages about these kinds of people even than there are about marriage, believe it or not, are slaves. Slaves. People with no rights of their own, bought and purchased and owned by another human being. That's right, the New Testament talks about them and talks to them. They existed in the first century and no, they didn't matter much to the society in which they lived, but they, mastered to the, they mattered to the Messiah who bought them. All they were were essentially pieces of property in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of the apostle, they were double agents for the king who could be sent as weapons, gospel weapons, to advance the glory of Christ, to put his glory on display. And you see, what's so fascinating to me about our text this morning about slaves is that slaves are not only spoken about in the text, they are spoken to in the text, which tells us Christ not only cares for them, he has something for them. He has something for them to be and do in the Great Commission. You see, it turns out what seems on the surface to be the most unfortunate of circumstances are nevertheless a platform to put Christ on display. And you know that's why Titus chapter 2 exists. You remember that Paul has a list of five different people and, and, he, and he talks about them to Titus and he gives Titus this personalized game plan for how each particular group in the church could be used to uh, um, advance the Great Commission, to maximize their lives for the Great Commission. And you remember the groups of people that he names. There are older men and older women, 50-ish and above. There are younger women, 40-ish and below. Younger men and last on the list are slaves insignificant in the eyes of the world, but they had at their fingertips an opportunity of a lifetime to advance the kingdom of Christ. And here's the thing about Titus. We, we, we say it every single week, don't we? What this is, is the blueprints of a healthy church. We be and do what this letter is calling us to be and do, and we will be a healthy church that changes the world. And you see, one of the things you need to be a healthy church is when the individual lives in that church are changed and transformed, and that includes even the nobodies whom the world regards as the scum of the earth, like slaves, for instance. Because yes, they too can make an impact. And it's true, none of you are slaves in the first century sense of the term. And yes, we'll deal with the question of whether slavery was condoned in the Bible. Yes, we'll deal with the question is why Paul didn't call for the abolition of slavery. Yes, we'll deal with the fact if this text has any relevance to your lives as 21st century Americans in the land of the free and the home of the brave. And I think you'll find that when we're done that this text has haunting relevance to your lives as 21st century Americans. So here's where we're going. Maybe you have notes, maybe you don't, but here's the direction. I want you to see from this text this morning four distinctives. 
four distinctives of ransomed slaves designed to display the beauty of the truth that redeemed them. That's where we're going. Four distinctives of ransomed slaves designed to display the beauty of the truth that redeemed them. And so here we go. Distinctive number one, ransomed slaves should submit to their masters. Ransomed slaves should submit to their masters. Look at verses 9 and 10. After addressing older men, older women, younger women, then younger men, look what Paul says. Titus, I want you to tell the slaves to submit to their own masters in everything. To be well-pleasing to them. To not be defiant or argumentative. To not pilfer, but to show all good faith. Why? In order that they should adorn in all things the doctrine of our of God, our Savior. Now, isn't it interesting to you that out of the groups, out of all the groups that Paul just named, that slaves make the list? Isn't that interesting to you? It's interesting because slaves are the only group on the list not identified by their gender or by their age but by their socioeconomic position in life. They're the only group defined by their occupation. And the fact that slaves get honorable mention probably, probably means, A, there were tons of slaves in the Roman Empire, and there were, and B, it probably means slaves were, were such a distinct group of people in the first century that when they were addressed, they knew exactly who they were. And so did everybody else. And here's the thing about slaves in the Bible. The the second we hear the word slave, everyone starts getting really uncomfortable because the first thing that comes to our minds is the disgusting African slave trade of the 17 and 1800s, right? And, And I know, I know your versions say servants or bond servants. And I'll just have you know that although that is a politically correct way to translate that word, that is an exegetically incorrect way to translate that word. The word that Paul uses means slave. It always means slave. It always means slave. Paul's not talking to volunteers or or 21st century employees who get overtime and paid vacation. He's talking about real life, first century slaves, someone who is bought and the property and owned by another human being. And we hear this, we hear Paul talking about slaves and we think, how can Paul be okay with this? I mean, did he actually condone slavery? I mean, what about social justice here, Paul? When he had the opportunity to call for the abolition of slavery and call it out as a social evil to be destroyed, why did he not do so? And to answer the question, we actually have to visit the slave quarters of the first century world. We have to find out something about slavery in the first century. And there are four things you need to know about slavery in the first century. Four things about slavery in the first century. Number one, you need to know that slavery in the Roman Empire was not as it existed in the United States. What I mean is, color of skin or ethnicity was not the defining factor in one becoming a slave. Slaves came from lots of different countries and nations all over the empire, and very likely, if we had pictures, if we had photographs of the first century world, very likely we would not be able to tell the difference between slaves and the masters who owned them. So so don't picture shackles and chains and racist plantation owners. That's not the Roman Empire. 
Now, I will say this. Exodus 21 does explicitly condemn the kind of slavery of the African slave trade. To, to abduct another human being and sell them at a ransom, Exodus 21 condemns that. And this is certainly not the sex slave trade. That is, a, that is a wicked and an evil thing that needs to be destroyed, and that's not what Paul is talking about here. Number two, you need to know that slaves in Paul's day were provided with food, clothes, housing, and when they got sick, they were given medical attention. Kind of like, but not really like, wages and health care. Those kinds of things, those were not given to free people. Roman citizens had to provide all those things for themselves. Now, it wasn't like it was a really generous thing. I mean, if your tractor broke, you fix it. If your slave broke, you fix it because you care about, the, you care about your income. But nevertheless, those things were offered. Number three. Slaves in the first century world could be highly educated and trained. You see, you see, slaves didn't just clean sewers and shovel manure. No, in Paul's day, slaves could be tutors and professors or philosophers or even physicians. There was a such thing as white-collar slavery in the Roman Empire. Sometimes slaves and free people worked at the exact same place and occupation together as butchers and bakers and miners and tailors. Some, some even had jobs working in the government. You had slaves working for the government. You see, slaves were at every level of society, and, 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 you, and in this Cretan congregation, you had slaves and masters saved and listening to the same sermon. Number four. And this is probably the most significant difference with the African slave trade. But in Paul's day, slaves could eventually become free and become Roman citizens. In, in, in fact, which, which to become a Roman citizen had profound blessings and, and, and benefits. You see, it was possible to earn your status as a Roman citizen through the ranks of slavery. In fact, there are stories of outsiders selling themselves into slavery so that they could become Roman citizens on the other end when their slavery was over. So what we're dealing with here is something distinctly different than the disgusting African slave trade of the 18th century. Now, having said that, having said that, we, we dare not picture the life of a first century slave as a cushy, privileged life that basically functions like it does here in America. No, um, because although the Roman mentality was less brutal than the Greek system that preceded it, I mean, there was a growing culture in the Roman Empire that called for the fair and equal treatment of slaves that was growing. Nevertheless, a slave was a slave and how a slave was treated depended totally on the master who owned them. Some masters were kind and loved their slaves like family. Others were brutal and awful and wicked and despicable. You could read ancient accounts of masters even hurting and beating and even crippling and, and even murdering their slaves for petty and, and silly reasons. I mean, that may not have been the norm, but that was definitely a possibility. So when, when Paul addresses slaves here in verse 9, that's who he's talking to. So the question is, when Paul had the chance to advocate for the overthrow of slavery, why did he, why did he not do so? I mean, why didn't he pull an Abraham Lincoln, an issue, an emancipation proclamation when he had the chance? And there are a couple answers to that. Number one, that was impossible. Humanly speaking, that was impossible. Roughly one-fifth of the Roman Empire's population 
was slaves. That's 12 million slaves in the Roman Empire. The, the entire empire was literally carried on the backs of, of the slave population. And number two, the other reason why Paul didn't call for the destruction of slavery is not only because that is not the mission of the church anyway, but also because the New Testament has something even more radical in mind than even the abolition of slavery. And what that is exactly is the supernatural transformation of both slave and the master who bought them through the power of the gospel. In other words, the Bible neither condones slavery nor does it condemn slavery because what the New Testament is concerned about is the internal dramatic transformation of both slave and master in such a way that would have brought the Roman Empire to its knees. What Paul was after was something profoundly supernatural that, of which the only explanation could be a sovereign God doing something profound. You see, what the New Testament was after was not the destruction of slavery, but the redemption of slavery in such a way that would have undermined it and caused it to topple over from within. That is the issue. And both of them, slave and master, were saved and sitting in church one Sunday morning while this letter was being read. What's so interesting to me is that, is that the New Testament, rather than try to distance itself from all, all hints or vestiges of slavery, it's very interesting to me, and isn't it interesting to you, that slave is one of the predominant titles and metaphors to describe Christians? I mean, what has to hit you is that what a slave was in the first century made it one of the most fitting ways to describe our identity as Christians. We are slaves. I mean, that's not all we are. We are sons. We are saints. We are priests. We are the elect. We are co-heirs with Christ. But make no mistake, we are slaves, purchased and paid for and the property of the one who bought us, namely Jesus Christ himself. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Do you feel that this morning? Now here's the thing, not that Christ treats us as slaves, by no means, by no means, but in terms of his ownership over your soul, that is exactly what you are. You are a slave. You are a slave and free, freed from the chains of sin, but a slave of the Messiah who bought you. And so odd question for you this morning, but how is your slavery going right now? <laughs> what I mean is, do you perceive yourself to be the property and possession of another? What I mean is, is it central to your identity this morning that you were bought with a price and that you are not your own? This life is not yours for just you to do whatever you darn well please. You are under the ownership and authority of another, namely Jesus Christ, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Do you see that? Are you gripped by that this morning? That is your identity. That is who you are. Because I'll just tell you, it doesn't matter what you claim who you actually serve is what you think about most when you are in solitude. 
And so are you a slave of Jesus Christ this morning? Or are you not? Because I'll just have you know, being a slave of Christ is the most joyful life that can be lived. Paul's talking to slaves, real slaves, purchased by Jesus Christ. And notice, notice what he says, the first thing on the list in verse 9. Look at the text. He says, Titus, be exhorting the slaves to submit to their own masters in everything. Tell slaves to submit, Paul says. Isn't that interesting to you? That, and, and, and if not a little surprising that this would be the first thing that Paul would say? I mean, is this how you would have greeted the slaves in the churches in Crete? Is that how you would have come alongside them in their current predicament as slaves to tell them to submit to their masters? I mean, shouldn't Paul have chosen his words a little more carefully? Well, he did choose his words carefully because, because Paul says this and not something else because submitting to their masters was one of the most practical ways that slaves could put Christ on display. You see, everyone who belongs to Christ, regardless of their profession, regardless of their location, regardless of their situation, is sovereignly placed by him exactly where he wants them. They are where they are because he wants his glory to be where they are, even if it was to be as a slave. But what this does is raise the question, doesn't it? What does it mean for slaves to obey their masters? What does, that, what does that mean? Or since employers is maybe the closest equivalent that we have here in 21st century, what does it mean to obey and submit to them? And what you need to understand is that following orders and just doing what you're told, that is not inherently supernatural. Anyone can do that. On the outside, on the surface, non-Christians can follow orders and obey authorities just like, just as effectively as Christians can do. But you see, what Paul has in mind is something way more radical and supernatural. You see, when Paul calls slaves to submit to their masters, he means the kind of submission that is a byproduct of their salvation in Christ. He's talking about the fruits of a redeemed life here. And so, here's what it means. For a Christian slave to submit to their master or their boss or their employer or their supervisor or any other authority for that matter, it means that they know that they exist. To display the worth of Christ by diligent, compliant, thorough, and exceptional labor that not only meets but even surpasses the expectations of their masters. That's what he's after. In other words, you're not lazy, sloppy, half-hearted, defiant, always cutting corners, doing the bare minimum, always copying an attitude. No, no, he means you reflect the value of Christ by diligent, compliant, and exceptional labor that not only meets, but even surpasses the expectations of your masters. Why? Why would you do that? Why, why would you do that? Because, because the most important person in your life is not the one who signs your checks, but the one who saved your souls. You do that not because your boss might be watching you, but because the boss who bought you with his blood is always watching you. 
This is exactly what Paul meant in Colossians 3.22. Listen to what he says. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And yet the question is, in what areas, in what areas are you to obey your masters, your bosses, your supervisors, your authorities. I mean, let's not take this too far. Let's not get carried away here, Paul. Well, look what he says in verse 9. Be exhorting the slaves, Titus, to submit to their masters in everything. In everything, he says. Not just when it's convenient for you, or when you feel motivated, or when they ask nicely. No, in all things. Meaning what? Meaning you obey as long and as far as you can until or unless it would be in subordination to Christ. The question is, is that how you, a slave of Christ, responds to the authorities in your life right now? Are you a submissive slave? the authorities that Christ has sovereignly placed in your life. And no, it's true, you're not actually a slave. I get that, but you are a slave of Christ. And he wants his glory to permeate every aspect, every corner of society, everywhere that you show your face. And so the question is, are you thorough in your work or are you lazy and sloppy? Do you work extraordinarily or are you meh, ordinary? And do you not only meet, but even surpass the expectations of your masters? Bottom line, what I'm asking is, is there anything about the quality of your work, anything about the quality of your attitude that shows that you are different from the other slaves? That something radical and supernatural has happened to you, like the God of the universe broke into your life and you got saved, because that is exactly what Paul is after. I mean, you have to understand, this isn't just a work ethic thing. This is a kingdom ethic thing. This isn't just a job performance issue. This is a great commission issue. And, and again, I know, I know that not everyone here is an employee with, who, who has a boss, but I'll just have you know, everyone in this room is under authority to someone. Slaves to masters, employees to bosses, children to parents, um, congregation to the elders. Bottom line, how you respond to the authorities in your life is a great commission issue and it is a reflection of how you feel about God's authority. Number two. Distinctive number two. Ransomed slaves should be a delight. Ransomed slaves should be a delight to their masters. And again, what I mean is, you are the slave ransomed by Christ, and you should be a delight to those in authority over you. <laughs> Look what he says, verse 9. He says, be exhorting the slaves to submit to their own masters in all things. Here it is, to be well-pleasing to them. In other words, to bring great delight and pleasure to their souls. That's what he just told the slaves to do for their masters. You see, God's will for your life, or at least one tiny aspect of that will, is to bring pleasure and delight to those who are in authority over you. 
Which sounds crazy, doesn't it? But it's not. It's not crazy. It's revolutionary. You see, Paul doesn't call for the overthrow of slavery as a system, but the redemption of the slave-master relationship that would have undermined it and toppled it over from within. You see, what Paul was calling for was something way beyond the usual run out the clock, work for the weekend, do the bare minimum just so that you don't get fired kind of mentality prevalent in every single company. No, what Paul is after is an integrity, a diligence, a punctuality, an initiative, and an attitude that brings great delight to their souls. Now, don't get me wrong. Paul is not talking about the suck-up, brown, neat, brown, noser, teacher's pet kind of person. That person's only looking out for themselves. No, what Paul means at the end of the day, when he says that you are to be well-pleasing to the authorities in your life, get this now, what he's after is love. That's what he means. That you love those in authority over you. He's talking about love here, a selfless love that dies to self, that proactively pursues what is best for those in authority over you, who actually cares about that person as a person with a soul. And and the question is, who does this? And the answer is exactly, exactly. No one does, no one does. Only those who have been ransomed by Jesus Christ, they do. Only those who have been delivered from eternal destruction, they do. Only those who have truly tasted of the endless riches of Jesus Christ have the power and the motivation to love those in authority as real people with souls. See, that's why this is so revolutionary. It is supernatural. So the question is, do you love those With all their imperfections, do you love those who are in authority over you? Do you proactively seek what is best for them, whether they be kind or they be cruel? Or do you just chafe and resist and resent and complain and grumble about the authorities in your life? Because think about it, to to be a Christian slave in the first century world was a little bit like espionage, wasn't it? It, They they were kind of like double agents, spies sent by King Jesus to infiltrate the empire and burn it to the ground from the inside out, not by riots and graffiti, but by living transformed lives and loving people through the proclamation of the gospel. I mean, I don't know if you know this or not, but but church historians tell us that one of the things that made Christianity impossible to contain in the first century was its outbreak in the trenches of slavery. You see, slaves were, were double agents undercover, under the service of the king. They served their master, but who they really served was the master of their masters. And their job wasn't to steal secrets, but to reveal secrets. Their job wasn't to gather information, but to give information, namely, that a savior had come. Don't you see, don't you see the parallel? To be a Christian means that you and I are a part of something infinitely bigger than ourselves. That we're a part of the greatest revolution in history. That even the most 
daring and adventurous spy mission the government can devise is child's play in comparison to being an ambassador for the king. Think about it. If you belong to Christ, you are double agents undercover in your jobs, in your neighborhoods, sometimes even in your own families. And most double agents for Christ, they think that their job is to conceal their identity as Christians. False. Your job is precisely to reveal your identity as a recipient of the infinite mercy of God through Christ. Don't you see? You are agents sent out into the world the second you were saved by grace. You were made a missionary and an ambassador of that grace. Don't you see? That's what Paul's after here. And so the question is, when it gets down to the nuts and bolts of how you live your life, is your diligence and integrity and attitude one that brings great delight to their souls? In fact, I dare you, I double-dog dare you, on Monday morning to pull your boss aside privately and show them this text and say, hey, you know what? I just found out from the Bible that I'm supposed to bring great delight to you. That I'm to make your job as a boss slash supervisor slash employer uh, uh, one of delight, pleasure and delight. Can you think of any ways that I can personally do that for you? Think about if you did that. <laughs> it's a little weird, but you know what? Think about if you did it and you followed through. That's incredible. That's, that's incredible. That's what Paul is after. That is revolutionary. Which brings us to demonstration number three. Demonstration number three, ransom slaves should not be defiant. Or your version says argumentative. Ransom slaves should not be defiant. Look at the end of verse nine. Paul, Paul says that slaves who belong to Christ, they, they should be lots of things, they should be submissive to their own masters and everything. They should be well-pleasing to their masters, bring great delight to their souls, but one thing they can never, ever be is defiant or argumentative, defiant, which makes sense, doesn't it? If slaves slash employees are gonna bring delight to the souls of their authorities, the last thing they should ever be is defiant. And if you think about it, defiance, that's the spirit of the age, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if you know this or not, but almost every single day there was some protest, there was some march, there was some demonstration to express some kind of defiance to authority. Grads standing up and walking out of the room when Mike Pence delivers a graduation speech. People standing up in a crowd, turning their back to some government authority when they speak about some subject. I mean, these are strange days in which we live, in which people ha increasingly have the inability to submit to authority. There, there, there's a growing unrest and hostility. The, the threshold that people have to do what they're told and to submit to the authorities is increasingly, no, it is decreasing and deteriorating every single day. I don't know if you feel that or not. And yet easy and kind of fun, though it may be, to pick on millennials and their crybaby attitudes towards authority. Let's be really honest here. All of us have the propensity to be defiant, don't we? Adam and Eve's rebellious blood still 
pumps through our hearts, still courses through our veins, crying out for the redemption of our bodies at the end of the age. We chafe at authority, always ready to raise a fist of defiance. The second we don't get what we think we deserve, tell me I'm wrong, Americans. And yet, and yet no one, no one was in a more unprivileged position in life. No one had a bigger victim status in life than slaves in the first century. <laughs> Essentially pieces of property, no rights of their own, no access to justice, no access to the courts, owned by another human being. And yet what is it that Paul tells them that they should never be? Do not be defiant, he says. Literally back talkers, insubordinate, quarrelsome, belligerent, argumentative, confrontational. You see any of that in your life? Some people prefer a little more passive approach, snarky comments, insinuations, eye rolls, loud sighs, silent treatment, head shakes, uh, terse one-word email responses to the boss, complaining, slandering, commiserating with other with other employees about the slave behind their backs, you see any of that in your life? That is defiance. That is defiance and that is completely inconsistent for someone who belongs to Christ. Did you know that? It's completely inconsistent. It makes no sense. It makes zero sense to belong to Christ and yet be defiant. Do you know why? Do you know why it makes zero sense? I've got two reasons, two reasons. Number one, Romans 13, one and two could not be clearer. It says, let every person be submissive to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except by God and the ones which are have been appointed by God. Therefore, the one who resists authority resists the authority appointed by God. You resist authority, you resist the God who appointed that authority. Number two, I just can't help but think that when we chafe and defy those in authority over us, that I just can't help but think that we have forgotten. That we have lost perspective. Listen carefully, at the deepest level, defiance reveals that we have gotten all me-centered and entitled. It reveals that we have lost the humility that comes when we remember what God had to do to save us from eternal woe and despair. Because when we remember that, the miserable eternity from which we were saved and the endless riches we have in Christ, when we remember that, when we are defined by that, instead of what we think we deserve, we can have the humility to submit to anyone. And you might be thinking, Jared, what are you advocating for here? Just, just, just let the authorities abuse us, walk all over us? Just, just, just never stand up for our rights? No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, even if you are treated unfairly, that is a design of God to put Christ on display. Don't believe me? Look at 1 Peter 2, 18 through 23 in your notes. 
Or if you don't have those notes, listen very carefully. He says, slaves, submit to your masters with all fear. Get this. Not only to the kind and gentle, but also to the unreasonable. Why? For this finds favor with God. If for the sake of conscience one endures sorrows patiently while suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if while sinning and being harshly treated you endure with patience? I mean, big deal. So what? But if while doing good and suffering you endure with patience, this is favor with God. For you were called for this purpose. What purpose? suffering unjustly. You were called for that purpose, to suffer unjustly. Americans, you were called as a Christian to suffer unjustly. Your purpose, your calling in this life is to suffer unjustly. That's what the text says. It's unbelievable. Because look what he says. Uh, For you were called for this purpose, Because Christ also suffered for you. Here it is. Leaving behind for you an example that you should follow after his steps. And how did he suffer? What was his example? Who when he was reviled did not revile in return. Who when he suffered uttered no threats but committed himself to the one who judges righteously. Do you hear that? That is staggering, isn't it? That is radically countercultural, radically counterhuman. And so the question that raises is how are you doing with the authorities in your life right now? How are you doing with them? Toward bosses, parents, the shepherds of this church who love you? Do you see patterns of defiance? in your life toward the authorities that Christ has appointed in your life? Because here's the thing, even if the authorities in your life are unreasonable jerks, your calling as a slave of Christ on the basis of this text is to suffer like the one who suffered for you and the result of that is the tangible display of Christ himself. That is supernatural. Which brings us finally to demonstration number four. The pain is almost over. Not of my preaching, hopefully, but of the heat, I mean. (laughs) Demonstration number four, ransomed slaves should not be thieves, but faithful. Ransomed slaves should not be thieves, but faithful. Because look what he says in verse 10. He says, be exhorting the slaves to submit in all things to their masters, to be well-pleasing, not defiant, here it is, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Why? in order that they should adorn in all things the doctrine which is of God our Savior. Now, do you remember when God killed people in church? Do you remember that? When God killed people in the middle of a church service? Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, remember that? They sold some real estate made a big spectacle out of their generosity and made this showy donation in front of the church and God struck them dead in front of the entire congregation. And you remember the issue, the issue was not that they kept some of the money for themselves. That that was not the issue. They weren't required to give anything. They didn't have to give anything. That was their choice. The issue was that they said they gave all the money, 
but they kept, kept back some from themselves as a way to show off their generosity and give the impression that they were, they were way more generous than they actually were, and God killed them for it. My point is this. That word used to describe their crime, for which God killed them, that is used in one other place in the New Testament. Guess where? Right here, Titus 2, verse 10. Pilfering. And the meaning of the term literally has the idea of putting something aside for yourself. And by implication, something that doesn't belong to you. See, this isn't the, the Greek word for holding up a liquor store at gunpoint or robbing a bank. Not that there was a Greek word for that, but the word that was used here was, was something way more subtle and clever and sneaky. You see, what this was was a skim off the top, take the crumbs but leave the loaf, no one will notice kind of stealing. It's a stealing that didn't really feel like stealing because no one would probably ever notice if they never thought to count the crumbs. And what's really interesting to me is that thievery among slaves in the Roman Empire was a well-documented historical fact. Everybody knew that slaves were sneaky little cheats and thieves, never ever to be trusted. Add that to the fact that you have the existing cruddy reputation of Cretans who were known as these wormy little liars. What you have, a Cretan slave, a Cretan slave. That is the worst of the worst. You can't get any worse than a Cretan slave. Unless, unless of course, you have a slave ransomed and rescued by Jesus Christ. A slave who something profoundly supernatural happened to them. A slave who could be trusted, who never took one thing that his master didn't intend. A slave whose pockets were just as empty at the end of the day as they were when they showed up for their shift. Who, who never skimmed off the top, who never pocketed was, what wasn't theirs to take. Who could be absolutely trusted would have been so incredible. It would have been almost mythological. I'm talking unicorns and fire-breathing dragons here. This is unheard of. But of course, we're not talking about your average slave, are we? We're talking about someone who has been redeemed and rescued by Jesus Christ. Think it, think it through here. Over 12 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And Christianity blasting its way through the slave population, saving slaves, what that results in is like a million camera flashes in a stadium of darkness. And so what I'm saying is, that is exactly the kind of opportunity that you have in your spheres of influence. Because you're surrounded by people all the time, all the time, who skim off the top, who keep some back for themselves, who cheat the system. I mean, maybe they're not snatching money from the cash register, but they, but they are taking, maybe they're taking company resources for personal use. Maybe they show up late, maybe they leave early, maybe they take extra long breaks, maybe they waste work time on social media, maybe, uh, maybe they're lazy or sloppy or half-hearted or cutting corners. That is stealing, that is pilfering, that is exactly what Paul has in mind. The question is, in your spheres of influence, are you the camera flash in a stadium of darkness? Are you different than the average slave? What I'm asking is, even when no one is watching, 
is the way you live and the way you work evidence that Christianity for you is so much more than just your religious preference? I mean, does it demonstrate that there is a God and he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ and he not only saves people from hell, but he also transforms their very lives? Is that what your lives demonstrate? Because look at verse 10. It's not just that we steal, Paul says. He says, but that we show all good faith. Meaning what? Not just that we don't break the rules, but that we are the most trustworthy people on the face of the planet, which for theology is true. That's the only thing that makes sense, right? Are you the most trustworthy person on the face of the planet? Are you that? Because look at the end of verse 10, and I close with this. For what purpose? For what aim? What's the goal of, of being these kinds of slaves? What's the goal of this? To win your freedom? To get a pay raise? To win employee of the month? No, something profoundly more grand and significant. Look what Paul says. Slaves are to be all these things. Look at the text in order that we should adorn in all things the doctrine of God, our Savior. Do you hear that? Paul makes a really, really big deal about doctrine in this letter. And he says not just are we to believe it, but we are to adorn it. You don't just believe it, you wear it. You don't just profess it, you, you adorn it. You are transformed by it. That word, that word in the Greek is cosmeo, from where we get the word cosmetics. The point is by our transformed lives, we display the beauty and the credibility of the truth that saved us. That's the issue. And so here's the thing, all this talk about life transformation I think has forced me to ask you a question that is very bold and yet I feel very necessary. And the question is, have you been transformed by the saving power of God? Does that describe you? I mean, maybe culturally you're a Christian in name or religious preference, but maybe, maybe you're not a Christian by adoption. I mean, you still might be a spiritual orphan, a slave held hostage in the slave market of sin and Satan. And the people who just assume that they're okay without any sort of introspection are the very kinds of people I am concerned about. I mean, regardless of what you claim, do you find Christ just as boring as the world does except that you get up early and go to church on Sunday morning? Is that the only difference? Does your life manifest and display the unmistakable work of the sovereign transforming mercy of the living God? Because I'll just tell you right now, there are two kinds of people in the world, two kinds of slaves in the world. There are slaves of Christ and there are slaves of sin. And there ain't no middle ground. There's no middle ground. The question is, which one are you? Which one are you? Because if you are still a slave to your sin, the worst, I mean, the worst possible thing you could do would be to try to cut yourself loose with the hacksaw of your own achievements. 
to just, to just try to be a really good person and hope that God's gonna allow you in on that basis. No, you need to hear me very carefully. Calling all slaves to sin. Come to Christ. Come to Christ with your chains clanking. The great emancipation proclamation was issued 2,000 years ago at the cross when Christ declared, it is finished, it is over. The price has been paid. And so if you don't know Christ, I'm, uh, my question for you is, what, what on earth are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Christ, right this minute, is offering free of charge salvation purchased and paid for in full. Because you need to know the only way, the only way to get to paradise and see God is to be on the blood-bought guest list of Jesus Christ. And I just want you to know Christ is inviting you right now, right this minute, to take him up on his offer. And I just want you to know that you would be out of your mind not to accept the invitation. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I think of Luther's words, we are beggars, this is true. Oh Lord, we're just people. We're people who struggle. We're people who sin an awful lot. Even on this side of our conversions, Lord, we struggle and so we are need in, in great need of your continuing mercy every single day. And I pray that you would awaken people in this congregation. I pray that you would renew people in this congregation. I pray that you would transform people in this congregation to live lives of Christ-exalting significance for the Great Commission. Oh Lord, that your word would, that your word would impact their souls, that it would crash against their souls with stunning force and cause them to see that they have nothing to lose and everything to gain by, be, by being recklessly abandoned to you. Oh Lord, I desperately want this church to be a healthy church that changes the world and yet I trust you for that. Whether you do that through this church or not is up to you, but nevertheless we ask. And I thank you for these blessed sheep, oh Lord, what a privilege it is to be in their lives and there to, to, to be in mine. We're, we're grateful to be on this mission together. Encourage them, give them hope, give them strength, help them live lives that put you on display. Thank you in Christ's name, amen. Well, before I do a benediction and then we all go rinse off somewhere, um, uh, one uh, announcement I want to make you aware of, if you want to pull up the slide there. Uh, you know, I, I do not envy uh, the people in our government and policymakers who have to decide what to do with uh, people who want into America. Um, that's, a, that's a tricky position, and it's easy to take pot shots at them, and it's really tricky. Uh, they have to balance the fact that they, uh, they want to uphold the American value of being a place where this can be a place where people can come and experience the unique freedoms of America, and yet they have to be very, very careful to protect the current citizens that are here. So they're in a quandary that I do not envy. Um, and, and yet, nevertheless, uh, I think it's wise to think of, okay, you know, there, there are some people caught in the crossfire of this, namely the children of, of this situation. And so, um, so without their consent, they are stuck in some, some difficult situations right now. Difficult is probably is not the right word for it, very miserable and, and, and awful. And so uh, there's all sorts of wrong things you could give money to. But if you were like, hey, I just want to do something, what, what can I do? Well, this is what you can do. We're 
World Relief is a, is a good organization that actually has some good values, um, some things that, that we would be really excited about. Um, uh, many professing Christians, they have an overall sort of, uh, um, you know, Christian uh, uh, focus, and they want to help. So if you were looking for any way, any opportunity, I think this would be the, the best thing out there on the market if you wanted to contribute in this way. The website is at the bottom, so that'll stay up for a few minutes, um, and you can you can write that down and, and go there. There's a, uh, also a, way, a link to contact a government representative or just to, just to donate. And uh, apparently, you know, they're turning away people who try to bring stuff to the door. Like if you were to bring a truck of stuff to the door, they're going to turn you away. This is this, you know, this official, formal uh, way is a, is a good way to do it if, if you were wanting a way to be involved, okay? All right, well, why don't you stand if you are able, and we'll close with a benediction. And the benediction comes from Hebrews 13, 20, and 21, which says this. Now may the God of peace, the one who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, may he equip you in all things to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To him is the glory forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed. We'll see you next week.